0: Hello! Welcome to Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios, with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello. With Elizabeth Spires of New York Times and elsewhere. Hello. And we have an amazing show this week. And the reason we have an amazing show this week is because we have Jason Del Rey on the show this week. Jason, welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. Well, introduce yourself. Who are you? What do you do? And do you happen
1: to have written a book recently? I'll start with the happen to have written a book recently. I have. I I wrote a new book that's called Winner Sells All, Amazon, Walmart, and the Battle for Our Wallets. It was published on June 20th. And for a decade, I covered Amazon and Walmart and sort of the future of retail and e-commerce at Recode and Recode's predecessor, All Things D. So, we are going to talk about that. We're going to talk about
0: Amazon and Walmart and their rivalry and who's winning and the trade offs that happen between e commerce and physical retail. We are going to talk about retail more broadly. I am going to ask you about marijuana stores. We also have a segment on puerto rico and its tax breaks and whether those have worked or not spoiler alert no they haven't um we have a slate plus segment on taco tuesday and taco johns and whether the big corporate cease and desist bully of taco tuesday is actually for emily peck the underdog in this whole story it's a fun one this week so it's all coming up on slate money
2: You should definitely sign up for Slate Plus for this one.
0: So, Jason, you have written an entire book about Amazon and Walmart, the behemoths of e-commerce and real world commerce, respectively. Both of them have made attempts to move into the other one's territory. Neither, none of those attempts have been massively successful. So tell me, like, you have this rollicking history of the past and now, Am I wrong to think that we are at a kind of steady
1: state where nothing much is changing for the foreseeable future? It feels like that might be the case, but but what I'm seeing right now is actually, I think Walmart is actually getting better at online retailing before Amazon has come close to even uh, Becoming a solid player in physical retail. Now, yes, they bought Whole Foods in 2017 and run that operation and are adding pay with your palm technology to every store, but I don't know that that experience inside Whole Foods is any better than it was pre, if not, I think some customers would argue it's worse. I am one of those customers,
0: by the way, as as a Manhattanite. I think most Manhattanites would agree with me that Whole Foods has got noticeably worse
1: since the acquisition. They've not come close to figuring this out. They've tried their own stores like Amazon Fresh grocery stores and the bookstores, which they closed down. And so they've really struggled. And Walmart. Is kind of starting to get their act together uh, in the last couple of years, partly because they were forced to by the pandemic um, start using those stores as pickup and delivery centers.
0: I remember when Amazon bought Whole Foods; every single grocery stock fell. Everyone was like, "Amazon's getting into this business, and this is going to, you know, change everything." Just like when they bought, you know, PillPack, all of the, you know, pharmaceutical retailers stock sell and everyone thinks of amazon as this great disruptor which when it gets into a business like that business just changes forever but in reality
1: amazon seems really
0: quite bad at disrupting existing businesses
1: i don't know about bad but i will i will say like as a member of the media i admit in the past i've sometimes bought into the idea that the stock drops of these competitors amazon you know they often think of themselves as the smartest guys and gals in the room and they're just going to come in and figure it out and as as you point out they've they've had a tough time you know in in healthcare a bit but but that's still early days uh but i think the whole foods case is is absolutely correct that uh they've been underwhelmed by what they've been able to accomplish and i'm not totally clear whether it is a mix of arrogance or just lack of expertise or just that physical retail is actually really hard like um keeping produce fresh and uh keeping store employees happy and working and productive and all those other things that that go into a store you know it's th- they were not used to it and and they still frankly uh, don't seem to be so they've gone and hired some outside help from the physical retail space but it's still an open question whether they can eventually have any success here
3: well, it's funny, you know, one of the overarching themes of the book is that you you sort of come in and say, nobody really thinks of Walmart as an innovator, but, you know, all this interesting stuff has been happening behind the scenes. And I remember I worked at Walmart in 94, 93 uh, in, in rural Alabama. I remember there are people talking a lot about Walmart's just-in-time inventory system, which was considered innovative, but it wasn't had nothing to do with the internet or anything like that. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the innovations that they have made that you know people don't really know about or you would consider on par with some of the stuff that Amazon has done?
1: yeah, so I mean, if you go back to the time you're talking about even before Amazon existed, you know they they had this uh you know communication system that allowed all the stores to communicate with each other it was satellite system that was super innovative they had this retail link uh, which still exists data warehousing system that allows vendors to sort of um, see their sales da- data and track all of that that was super innovative and then you know even as amazon start you know started to grow i mean the super sender model and we could talk about it, all different reasons for walmart's success but they were the everything store before the Amazon Everything Store, right? And that was obviously incredibly disruptive. And then just, you know, one last piece, and, and maybe we'll talk more about healthcare at some point. When they came out with the four dollar uh, generics, which was a big—I uh, think that was in the mid aughts, so maybe like 2005 or something like that—that that was a- incredibly disruptive in the in the pharmacy space as well. So th- those are just a few things off the top of my head. I,
0: I would like to j- jump in here and add that Walmart has been an incredibly big innovator in a positive way. And I almost never say this when it comes to financial innovation and financial services. I spend a lot of time covering Latin America in general and and Mexico in particular. Walmex has a bank, which is one of the best banks in Mexico. And if you're a sort of relatively working class Mexican person, it is so much better than the big three incumbent banks. It's not even funny. They have consistently tried and failed to become a bank in the united states basically the federal reserve won't let them but they have a partnership with a bank called green dot where they do debit cards and stuff and that again is an incredibly like good partnership selling good financial products to people who really need that and who don't want to get ripped off by by you know payday lenders and that kind of thing so again like financial services is one of those things which is potentially enormous it does Mesh very naturally with supermarkets um in the u k supermarkets all become banks and they're very successful at that in the u s they're not allowed to but it's one of those areas where again, everyone has kind of expected Amazon to get into that one way or another, and they never really did
1: I'm trying to remember all the different initiatives they've tried over the years, and uh you know i back when I was covering more iterative you know hiring news at amazon they they'd go and poach a Credit card executive or a Visa executive, and maybe there was stuff happening bes- behind the scenes, but no, nothing much that ever surfaced in in product form. I mean, they do have obviously they have their own uh, store branded card and things like that for Prime members, but uh, yeah, it still seems like open opportunity. But you you might you probably know better than I how how much uh, just sort of red tape there would be for for either of them to get into that space in a big way.
2: One of the things with the Walmart versus Amazon rivalry is Walmart feels like it needs to be a player in online to just compete and stay relevant. And Amazon, for reasons, wants to do physical stores, but it doesn't really, Amazon doesn't really need to do physical stores, but Walmart has to become relevant as a digital company. It has to go online. It has to have an online presence. You can't be a physical retailer now without an online presence, right? I mean, that's just not possible.
1: Unless you're a Trader Joe's is like a, a weird, right. a really weird right. exception that um, I'm fascinated with, But uh, and we are in suburban New Jersey, a Trader Joe's family. But no, to your point, I, I think that's right. I think though Amazon sees physical retail a couple of things. One is as they sort of saturated you know, US households in terms of um, getting prime members among the households they were going to. I think they were just looking for retail growth in other areas, and just look at e-commerce penetration, and it's still, I don't know, fifteen to twenty percent of total retail, or something like that. So I, I think that's one reason. I think the other reason is, you know, shipping costs and return. You know, the the price of free returns is become enormous, and so I think they partially wanted physical retail for pickup and and drop off locations. And yes, they partner with. UPS, and they partner with Kohl's stores uh, to allow uh, returns there. But I, I think that was another piece.
2: That's so interesting. So the store isn't really meant for people to buy stuff in; it's just like a cheaper way for people to return stuff.
1: I think that's certainly part of it, and 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 also as you know, in Whole Foods' case, to deliver from. But I have the I have these anecdotes in the book about Amazon's bookstores, and the employees who worked in in them told me. The goal was not to sell books. The goal was to sell gadgets and sign people up for free trials to Prime and Audible and all the digital subscriptions. And that actually took a, a really shady turn in some cases, according to these employees, where um essentially managers had these were putting pressure on employees to sign up, convert people into these free trials at really high rates, and they started not really asking customers. And so you'd get, you know. Some old customers uh come back in really confused about why they now have prime memberships, and so listen that 's maybe not just an Amazon thing maybe that uh, for those who 've worked in retail maybe you 've signed people up for card credit cards and not not the most above board ways but um but they 've yes they 've had a bunch of reasons beyond selling goods to get into physical retail so you were mentioning that e
0: commerce is fifteen twenty percent of all retail, which is a low number. And I'm going to assume that Amazon has like a house view that it can go much higher than that. How high do you think Amazon thinks it can go? And do you think they're
1: right? Let me back up a second. So yes, something 15, 20%. But that includes all sorts of categories that may... For one reason or the other, never go online in a, in a full way. And so I think that includes things like gas spending, um, and sort of any physical world spending. And so there are, there are some things that won't go online, but in some categories, you know, it's, it's well over 50%. Um, I want to say perhaps consumer electronics, I want to say maybe toys. I don't know how high Amazon thinks it can go. There are plenty of people who think it'll go 50% and that the other 50 will include things that may never go online. I I think the you know, I think the bigger issue for them has been Prime is so important to them figuring out new ways over the years to get sort of uh, into lower income households with a Prime membership, and you know I have a chapter that just goes through their sort of attack on the Walmart customer, and through discounts and monthly, um, being able to pay monthly versus annually and the like. And so I think they're they're constantly trying to figure out how to get that that Prime membership number up, even though you know the estimates are something like I don't know seventy percent or seventy five percent of U.S. households um, already have it.
2: Yeah. You mentioned in the book, they give discounts for people who use food stamps or people on Medicaid.
1: Any sort of government assistance. And, um, just yesterday I saw Walmart executive announce on LinkedIn that Walmart plus, which is their pseudo, uh, Amazon prime minus the entertainment and other things, uh, is now going to be half price for those on government assistance in the U.S. So forty nine bucks a year, um, which is actually what some Walmart executives wanted the the price to be. Period. Um, for a couple years uh, to try to steal steal Prime members away.
2: I wanted to ask you, Jason. So the book is about you know the rivalry between Walmart and Amazon. And in our prep meeting yesterday, I was saying how much I love a good business rivalry like i remember coke versus pepsi it was like foundational to my youth and it was a big deal and you had to have a, a stance like which side are you on i'm team coke are these corporate rivalries are they good for the businesses involved like does it actually spur innovation are they good for consumers because i was thinking maybe they are good for consumers because lower you know the race to the bottom of prices so maybe it's a good thing but then on the other hand it seemed like maybe it was a bad thing because all well, all Amazon suppliers, for example, hated dealing with Amazon because they were so ruthless about cutting the prices. I don't know. So, what's it good or bad?
1: Ooh, I, I'm not going to give you the TV show answer. I'm going to give you the co- it's complicated, which is you know I I think I think it's complicated. So, on the consumer side, I'll give one anecdote quickly. Last year, I ordered my family orders from Amazon, from Walmart, from Target. And then, when it comes to like gift shopping, we we usually try to visit physical stores in our town or or nearby towns. But um, so we were placing some order on Walmart, said two or three day shipping, and it showed up at our door later that same day in like a plastic Walmart shopping bag uh, when those were still legal in New Jersey and. I was like the the retail nerd in me was like holy cow this is magic. And you know that's Walmart finally starting to figure out like with the help of technology when it makes sense when they have something in stock nearby to to deliver it to your door. And so when I felt I was like man that does not happen without you know the Amazon Prime machine becoming as popular as it has been and that kind of made my retail nerds day, and so I, I think there are other cases like that. When you get to pricing, on one hand, I want to say that it it has been a good thing for consumers in pricing, um, but I, I do also believe that you know there are all these there are this a couple of these cases going on where Amazon's being sued and sellers are claiming that. Uh, Amazon doesn't want them price things more cheaply elsewhere on the web. And they could because they don't have all the Amazon fees. Like I I buy some of that argument as well. And so I I think I I think on consumers it's it's complicated. But on the convenience aspect, I think it's kind of been a a no brainer that the rivalry has been a, a good thing for me as the person behind a keyboard um, wanting to get something as quickly as possible.
0: I have a foreigner's view of Walmart and of U.S. retail in general, and we're going to talk a little bit more about shopping malls, but specifically about Walmart in places like New Jersey, you know, middle-class America. Um, people have very large houses. They have very large cars. They can drive their large car into the parking lot of a Walmart. They get a very large shopping cart. They fill it up with a huge amount of stuff and then they take it back to their large car and they store it in their large garage and then they slowly consume it over time. And what they're doing is they are basically... Doing a huge amount of that last mile logistics work of like storing in bulk and having things available just when you need it because it's in your garage and driving back and forth and picking out what you need. That work that used to be done by, you know, mom and pop retailers who like were next door and they would do the ordering and they would do the storing and the transportation. And then you just come in for a can of beans. Now you store, you know, three dozen cans of beans in your garage and pick one out when you need it. So all of that outsourcing of transportation and storage that was built into the walmart model and built into the u.s retail model clearly allowed walmart to charge much lower prices for stuff and when you sort of de-outsource that when you move back to this model of like we're just going to deliver you stuff as you need it that's naturally going to increase prices no and like and i just don't see how Amazon or Walmart or anyone else in a, in a world of like instant free delivery can possibly be that, you know, can can possibly have any of those economies
1: on the Walmart side. I'd say that's why we've seen them push very heavily into, into their pickup business, which is hugely popular now still requires, you know, an employee to work very hard. So we, we use their pickup business pretty, pretty regularly. And we, and what, and the, you know the difference to what you described is with their pickup business, we don't we don't make a two hundred dollar order to pick up. We need three or four things, and the price is the same or maybe a little cheaper than Amazon's. And you know, my wife or I will be you know we have a Walmart ten minutes from us, so we're usually. Within striking distance of it. They've leaned very heavily. And, you know, just reminds me, I talked to a guy in the, a former executive for the book. His name is Greg Foran, old school retail exec. He now actually is the CEO of Air New Zealand. Uh, He's from New Zealand. And, you know, all these anecdotes in the book where he's telling the e commerce folks, he's like, wait, 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 wait. Like, you want me to invest in all this like expensive delivery? Like, the best model is the model where, basically what Felix described, right? And so he became a fan of pickup because he knew they had to, but he was always um, really against the delivery business and the delivery model. And they've pushed into it, but I think in a sort of a more moderate way than they would have if they had sort of an e-commerce mind running, running the store business as well.
2: I should have asked you before we talked about winners and losers, but we didn't talk about Amazon and Walmart workers. Um you you hear a lot less about Walmart workers these days their efforts to unionize were a failure but it seems like the rivalry between the two companies again probably maybe was a loss for them i'm not talking about the executives you spoke with they're winning
1: i admit that when amazon when the amazon workers at the Staten Island facility won that that uh first union vote i i really thought and according to people i talked to at inside like walmart they were kind of expecting a real sort of renewal there and and momentum there for on the labor front, and it 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 largely hasn't happened. Um, but one thing that has happened is Amazon Walmart hired a whole slew of uh, Amazon warehouse execs and logistics execs, and um, there were there were some real like culture clashes inside the warehouses with some Amazon former Amazon leaders basically being expelled by their workforce um, for trying to bring the Amazon way and and um, into the into Walmart fulfillment centers um, but over time we've seen now Amazon execs former Amazon execs rise up inside the supply chain and logistics side of Walmart and so um the effect I mean listen I think there has been, whether the wages are enough or not i think amazon did force walmart and other retailers to ste- step up on on the hourly wages again there's a f- fair argument about is it a living wage or not um and so that's one thing but on the other hand i think the automation which is a whole another topic but the automation of amazon warehouses while it's eliminated some tough work has also added um i think many experts would say to to the uh, injuries inside Amazon warehouses from the speed that's now required. And we're seeing some of that start to be transported into Walmart facilities as well. We do need to talk more about retail,
0: but first, a couple of ads.
2: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases. And 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
3: Hello, I'm Immy Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced.
2: I got bombs
0: thrown into my house. I got people came here at my computer. And I I got people threatening me. I got this and that. But I'm safe.
3: And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Let's check back in on the, on the, on the retail apocalypse, both in terms of like shopping malls and in terms of high streets, um, where do we stand now three years after COVID killed everything?
1: I, you know, so there's long been, been this idea that the U S has been overstored for decades. Um, and now more recently we've seen city centers, uh, retail and city centers really ha- struggle. Um, I think part large part due to um work from home. But I mean to me it's kind of pretty simple. It's like mediocre retail, physical retail is going to die and very good to great retail will con- you know physical retail will continue to exist. If you're selling any sort of item that can easily be found on Amazon or Walmart or Target site and you're not and that is now millions and millions of products, and you do not either have some amazing customer service experience inside the store, or your curation for some reason is, you have sort of magnificent merchandising and or curation, like you're going to go away. And so that's sort of that's sort of how I look at it. And I, I talk with, you know, the small shop owners in our town about how they try to make it work. And we have this gift shop and he, he carries some stuff that's on Amazon, but he also has five people working in his store at all times because, and you're going to get just great, great service. Now I did not ask him what he's paying those five people. So that was probably, it's probably a a bit, you know, an important question that I missed, but you go into that store and you're taken care of, you feel taken care of, and you feel like you're going to go out having made a good decision. And so, Anyway, that, that's sort of I, how I look at where we're at. I think malls, again, the, you know, the anchored.
0: They've just become theme parks like experiences. They're not selling I mean, stuff I mean, I wrote a
1: story a couple of years ago and I, I talked to, I think, developer, um, city planners in Madison, Wisconsin. They were big fans of combined residential, you know, properties that were part residential. So they're <laughs> uh, turning part of the parking lots into condos, part entertainment and quote experiential and then part you know part retail and so i i think that's i think you, you sort of need that to succeed um but but we'll see i think i think i would have expected a lot more malls to be out of business by now because of covid and maybe if the pandemic the worst parts of the pandemic lasted longer we would have seen that but um bad and mediocre retail is going to go away and is.
3: Do you think another issue is that uh, you know, retailers reacted so strongly to what they perceived as a threat from shrinkage and shoplifting that they degraded the customer experience? Like I go to we have a giant target close to me and I went there last week to just get toiletries and everything is behind a locked counter. So it took me like 20 minutes to get five things. And I just thought, I'm just gonna order this off of Amazon next time because this is
1: Pointless. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we're seeing we're seeing some retailers saying like they overreacted to shrinkage and then others still talking about it as a huge problem while not actually disclosing, f- you know, what, what the real numbers are. But I think it is a problem. But the experience is, I mean, terrible for a different reason. Like I'm thinking of going into a whole food store right after the acquisition and bumping shoulders with all the delivery people. And, and it wasn't their fault that they were doing their job, but like that experience degrade for that reason. And yeah, you don't, you don't want to have to call a manager or, um, for what, what were, what were some of the products you were looking for?
3: Uh, I needed razors, shave gel, deodorant,
2: deodorant. <laughs> <rooms>. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the razors have always been locked up, but deodorant that's, that's new.
0: People stealing goods is not only bad for the stores that they steal it from, but it's also good for Amazon because
1: Amazon is where they turn around and resell it. I mean, Amazon would say it's very bad for them too. And they're spending upwards of X hundreds of millions of dollars a year and employee resources to combat it. And I and I, I think they are trying. I watched the CNBC documentary and, and there was uh, video footage of a woman at one store filling up a shopping cart and then just running out the door with the full shopping cart and then i think they i think they did something where they like locked the wheels of the the shopping cart and so then she's trying to drag it out the door it eventually tips and i think she just ran off this is a really fascinating unexpected
0: wrinkle to the whole question of how physical and electronic retailing interact and i've written about this in the context of luxury goods and sneakers and other collectibles is that there didn't used to be a huge um sort of profit margin in stealing such things because there wasn't an easy way of selling them but now that you have you know stockx and all of these you know other online places where you can sell it as long as they're genuine and if you've stolen them from a high-end luxury store, then they are genuine. It's it's very easy to sell these things. And I've talked to all of these um, stores, you know, Vestiaire Collective and The Real Real and all of that about, like, how do they try and prevent the sale of stolen goods? And basically, there's nothing they can do. Is that what they
1: is that what they told you?
0: We'll link to, to the story in the show notes. I mean, obviously they're not gonna come out and tell me on the record there's nothing we can do. But when I pushed them and then said, like, what are you doing and how do you prevent this? They just didn't have any answers.
1: Sounds sounds like a real problem, but but your point about they are genuine products. I remember a few years ago I interviewed um, he's still at Amazon. He's an executive who sort of runs the seller. The third-party seller relationship business, and um, we were talking about the growth of their marketplace and all the problems that sellers have with rivals, you know, trying to hijack their listings and all this stuff. And essentially, I said, you know, why, like do you really want to sell every product? Like what? Like, I don't know, 5 million products seems like, or whatever the number is, seems like a pretty good selection. Like, I think, I think you guys have won. And he was like, we want to sell every genuine product in the world, no matter, uh, you know, I forget his exact language, but it was essentially like, no matter how we, you know, whether it's who we get it from, if it's three resellers down, like it is fair game on our site. Now they would say not, um, stolen goods. But um, anyway, genuine is a problem, I guess.
0: I, I have one other retail question for you, which is um, across the country, but definitely here in New York, there has historically over the past few years been a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth about empty storefronts. Is the great Deus Ex Machina coming in to save retail marijuana i feel like marijuana (laughs) stores have come in everywhere and marijuana is single-handedly going to save retail because that has enormous retail margins and like there doesn't seem to be any limit to the number of marijuana stores that retail can support
1: i think it's obviously a huge industry and it's going to be massive but i don't know i i'm i'm in manhattan well during basketball season quite a bit because i'm a I'm a really depressed lifetime Knicks fan. Um, but, and within just a few blocks of Madison Square Garden, I don't, I don't know how many there are uh, wheat shops, but- Hundreds, <laughs> hundreds. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there is a limit. So I'd say that- that, that bit, But presumably they're all paying
0: rent, you know, in a way that, and those are all empty storefronts that were generating no rent before. I feel like this is a
1: boon to the local economy. I think it's probably a short-term fix. I don't know. Um, but maybe- you know, I haven't smoked a lot of weed recently, so maybe I'm the problem. The the question I have, and if any Slate Money listener out there knows
0: the answer to this question, I really want to know. The problem in New York is that all of those stores are illegal; none of them are licensed. Oh, right. Um, and my question is: given that they're breaking the law anyway by, you know, operating and selling marijuana in the first place, are they paying their sales tax?
2: I have a question. I don't even know if it's a question or more like a lament, but like Amazon and Walmart, did they ruin shopping? Because shopping used to be like a fun, enjoyable activity. People didn't just go to malls to buy stuff. They went to malls to like do something, right? So did Amazon and Walmart kind of ruin that or or did like Netflix ruin that? Do people not go shopping for fun anymore because there are more fun things you can do at home on the internet now? And does anyone like shopping anymore, or is it just like me? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I think I think, and this isn't—I I, I won't claim this is an original thought—but Amazon and what, like, there, those shopping sites, I look at them, they are, to me at least, like buying shite, sites, right? Not buying
2: shop, sites, yes, Not, sh-
1: right. not shopping right. sites, yes. And so, I happened to visit a mall earlier this week to meet. Friend from overseas, and after we met, I walked around and ended up um, v- walking into what I later learned is a uh, the largest chain of I think it's a Canadian based a Canada based um, gift shop and bookstore called Indigo, and uh, it was I stayed like forty five minutes in that place. Part of that was because I eventually found two copies of my book in the back of the store. Found a manager, yeah. asked her if I could sign the books, and then she took photos of me. So that was part of it. But <laughs> like fun. prior to that, I was still having a good time. I don't know. The the mall was empty. I mean, it was really empty. It was a weekday in the summer. Uh this is Short Hills Mall and in, in New Jersey. It is a good high end, too expensive for me often mall. Um but like so so my only point is I think they're I think they two different things, but I think a lot of people want to spend time in different ways as well. I don't know. What do you, what do, what do the rest of you think? I never liked shopping. Yeah. Even
2: like walking down a street in the village or something. And there's like cute little shops you can like pop yeah,
0: into. It's not in my jeans.
2: Elizabeth. Yeah. I think it's
3: just, you know, some of it is uh, a lot of the shopping experience is now just kind of fragmented because we don't have malls where the, it's really a community space. And some of it is we find communities in other places, but I think a little bit about what Jane Jacobs called placemaking, where you're essentially creating an experience around things like retail and you know living space and stuff like that, so that people want to be in proximity to the retail because it's adding other things or their environmental aspects that you like. And when I walk through Midtown and you see these kind of uh, you know chain stores taking up all the retail space. And there's nowhere to kind of sit or congregate, not enough outdoor space that's really blocked off from cars. And then the pandemic happens and people complain that nobody's coming into Manhattan voluntarily. It's like, well, why would you? You know, you might go in because you specifically need something, but you wouldn't have that kind of leisurely browsing experience that you had in the mall in in the 90s or there, there are too many substitutes for it.
2: Walmart kind of ruined the pleasure of shopping too with its physical stores. I don't know. If Felix has ever entered a Walmart. Yeah, I mean, like,
0: do, do people ugh. enjoy Do people enjoy shopping at Walmart in the way that it would w- Did Walmart ever make an attempt to create like the weird dark corner where the teens hang out in the way that like the malls used to back in the day?
3: I think before Walmart's became super centers, they were more like a cozy is not the right word. But now if you go into a super center, it feels like you're in an, a badly lit, Fluorescent in your face warehouse, and it's just—I I always feel like my my depression level cranks up anytime I go into
1: one. One, one more thing on that initial lament. Um, I'm looking. I'm looking. It, it triggered um, something I wrote. So this is ten years ago. Um, before, so I worked at Recode for a really long time, but I joined before it was Recode, and it was still all things D, um, which. <laughs> Which <laughs> anyway, um, so I wrote this piece in December of 2013, emotionless e-commerce and the death of the joy of gift giving was my headline. And it was basically how I was a lazy husband who did all of my shopping for my wife a week before Christmas. And I did it all online and there was no enjoyment to it. So I, I we feel each other a little bit on this. Yeah, event.
4: we're connecting. I see. Yes. <laughs>
1: We're going to have a quick break and then come back
0: and talk about Puerto Rico.
4: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds – Price and coverage match limited by state law.
0: Jason, can we change the subject completely and talk about Puerto Rico? Sure. Well, you you pointed me to a fascinating story, which is basically that the crypto bros and hedge fund managers and everyone who suddenly woke up one morning and said, I don't need to be in New York or anywhere on the mainland. I can move to Puerto Rico, do exactly the same job and not pay any federal income tax. Now
1: there's a little bit of a crackdown on those, right? Yeah, there seems to be and uh, it seems like the government in Puerto Rico wants to wants to help crack down on these wealthy Americans who are or mainlanders coming and and you know, not not sh- sort of sharing the benefits they're reaping with 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 the island and uh actually there's an Amazon seller community there as well and um I have not been smart enough in the past to ask them uh, the, that seller community about about tax stuff, but um, there seems to be a little crackdown. Felix, I, th- I think when we were talking a little bit about this be- beforehand, you had mentioned there's there's a lot of gray area in t- in some of these you know businesses into determining like where the actual work is happening, right? Right. I mean, so this is the idea. Like all of these laws were written
0: in the day where it was obvious where you earned your money and now it is not obvious where you earn your money and if you are a hedge fund manager or a crypto bro or something the money you earn in Puerto Rico does not you do not need to pay federal tax on but the money you earn in the rest of America you do and how how is that determined you know that's one interesting question i think in the initial stages of the crackdown um they're spending less time trying to pass that one out than they are just counting how many days these people are in Puerto Rico and if they're not in Puerto Rico for 186 days a year then they're like okay dude you got to pay your taxes but there does seem to be this does seem to be part of the sort of broader backlash against jurisdiction shopping wealthy people just deciding to choose to reside wherever the taxes are lowest. Like no one likes those people.
3: Yeah, there's also a there's some of this is happening under a statute called Act 60, where people who want these tax breaks are required to buy property in Puerto Rico within a year. And so part of what's happening too is that in in cities that are a little bit more touristy or, you know, Uh, urbanized, you have a lot of people coming in, buying property, saying that they live there, not actually living there, and in the process of that, driving up property values in Puerto Rico and pricing Puerto Ricans who've been there for generations out of their own homes.
0: Right, and we've seen this in Portugal as well. Portugal had this golden visa for people who came in and bought property, and then they stopped that because suddenly the local Portuguese population couldn't afford to buy property anymore.
2: Yeah, that's what I was confused about. Puerto Rico past act 60 this was this was their idea and they wanted rich people to come and live there because they were sh- the country was struggling but now be they're like what you forget for. it so it was there <laughs> is this an acknowledgement them working with the irs there was also is a, it a big exodus yeah.
3: after maria of people moving to the mainland and i think they were looking for a fix to that and sort of didn't anticipate that the consequence of it would be a bunch of crypto borrowers running you know coming in and buying up all the good real estate, there was a good uh, piece about that where there were some shots of protest posters that had faces of Logan Paul and Brock Pierce on them that said, go home, gringo. And so I wonder how much of it too is just reaction to the kind of people who are moving there for these specific reasons.
2: Well, I watched a very emotional TikTok of uh, a Puerto Rican woman who said like, the area behind her house that abuts the beach, where she feeds the wild horses, and there's a picture of the wild horses roaming and like a cute dog. And she's like, "Some rich person bought it and bought up all the beachfront property, and this is so unfair and it's not right." And went viral, and um, I think is one of the reasons Puerto Rico is maybe now cracking down. So it's kind of like a TikTok thing because <laughs> Logan <laughs> Paul is <more> on YouTube. <laughs>
0: Uh, but so yeah, Jason, what's your what's your take on this? Like, does Puerto Rico need to you know reverse the the brain drain that it has been suffering from for many
1: decades, but kind of not like this? What I hope might happen is the crackdown may sort of stop the most egregious, you know cases of folks really taking advantage of this and and not contributing anything back and maybe we'll just see folks who you know want to want to get some of the benefits but do it in an above board way but that seems like a really idealistic way to view this so i am not sure i mean that uh, the island needs help period um you know i have some family there and so um you know, after Maria specifically, I I know I know a bunch of people who moved moved to the mainland and um you know are now living happy successful lives. Um, most of, a lot of them in Florida actually. I don't think this goes away, um, but can I can I count on the governments to get this right and just? Uh,
0: it's a really it's a really hard nut to crack, and it actually, there's an interesting echo here of something in your book. Which is Amazon's years long attempt to remain within the sales tax loophole where, whereby people buying on Amazon in the early days of Amazon didn't need to pay sales tax. And they're like, this is our comparative advantage. This is, you know, and they wound up bending over backwards in ways that turn out to have been like quite self defeating to try and maintain the lack of sales tax for for most of their customers until the law changed and they were like, okay, fine, everyone pays sales tax. And it turns out that when they actually just started charging sales tax, it made it much easier for them and for everyone else. And it was a good thing for them rather than what they had initially thought, which was that would be a bad thing. And I think what you see with acts like this in Puerto Rico is that when you use tax incentives to try and influence behavior, you wind up getting people who are only there for the tax incentive. And those aren't the kind of people that you want. And, you know, Puerto Rico was very big in pharmaceuticals for a long time because of tax incentives. And then when the tax incentives went away, it stopped being big in pharmaceuticals in the same way. You know, like, these things are not, these things are always going to turn out to be temporary. And if you want to bring, you know, the smart professionals back to Puerto Rico, I think you've got to find a way to do it that doesn't attract, in the first instance, just people who are trying to game the tax system because those aren't the kind of people that you want. I That's above my pay
1: grade, so I'm going to say yes, Felix. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I love that. I like that. You don't – tax breaks attract the wrong kind of people. Theory is, is good. I, I support it. I love that part of your book that Amazon finally gave up trying to sort of game the sales tax system and once it did that, it could expand and build warehouses wherever it wanted, and that really helped it boost its growth. So it was like <clears throat> its proclivity to tax dodge was holding it back, basically, all those years.
1: That's what leaders there say in hindsight. I, I think at the time, I think some saw that, but some didn't. But they, you know, I have this fun little anecdote with... I think it was a tax executive at the company, and he came. He get, he kept like this long list of all the things they couldn't do because they were trying to avoid um, c- collecting sales tax, and like Bezos would come like peek at this list and of all these innovations they were holding back, and then eventually the biggest one was building giant buildings stuffed with merchandise all over the country. But um, that's worked out pretty well for them. Let's have a numbers round, Emily. What's your number?
2: Uh, my number is $1,001. That's the <clears throat> median weekly earnings of a full-time working woman in the U.S. right now. And the reason it's interesting b- is because it's eighty about 84% of what the median male earns, and that is the narrowest gender pay gap we have seen in the U.S. So it's a bit of good news. So women make about 15.5% less than men right now. And that is the narrowest that wage gap has ever been. So it's like a mix of things it's because pay went up for the low wage workers and women make up a majority of low wage workers. So that helps. And then also remote work for the higher wage workers kept more women sort of attached to the workforce and earning money throughout the pandemic. And um, it's a real turnaround from what we thought would happen at the beginning of March, 2020, when people like me were writing about the coming she session we were wrong didn't happen didn't materialize so it's a little bit of good news i guess although the bad news is still it's there's a big gap between what women and men make
0: my number is 386 dollars 95 that is the entry level lowest hourly pay for a uh, captain on the united airlines 767 400 there are two pilots on every plane one is the captain and one is the first officer they both can fly the plane they're both qualified pilots they both do the same job but only one of them is the captain and the captain is a more senior higher paid position the entry level hourly pay for the first officer who's the other pilot on the plane is $109.42. So basically a th- less than a third of what the captain gets paid.
2: That's weekly daily? What?
0: That's saying? per hour.
2: Per hour. Oh.
0: Per hour. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, these pilots get uh, a well paid. I was like
2: that doesn't sound like a good wage, but pilots, an hour. Pilots I'm with get you now. they they
0: wind up fi- <laughs> they wind up flying roughly 1000 hours a year. So you can you can sort of multiply those by 1,000. So the entry level pay for a captain on the 76747 is, you know, $390,000 a year, something like that. Good money. Not bad. What's interesting is that if you look across United Airlines, American Airlines, and all the other big airlines, they have a massive shortage of captains, and that roughly half of the first officers who are offered promotions to captain turn them down. I've written about this a little bit in my newsletter this week, that it is very very common for first officers to be offered a 40 50% pay rise to captain and for them not to take it. And the airlines haven't quite worked out how to solve this problem.
2: Why? Why won't they take it?
0: Because if you're a senior first officer, then you have a lot more control over your schedule. If you get promoted to captain, you become a junior captain and you have no control over your schedule and you can, you know, and it's just a lot more stress and you're away from your family more And they're like, you know, I need my work-life balance and I'm just going to make less money and have a happy life rather than make, you know, an extra $100,000 a year. And this is a big thing in the pilots industry right now.
2: Why don't they fix the way the job's structured?
0: I think that's what they're ultimately going to have to do. And they've tried to do this in the new um, union contract, but it's not clear whether they've done it enough. It looks like everyone expects that there's going to be this sort of endemic captain shortage for for a while yet
2: the airlines really screwed things up right i mean they let so many people go at the beginning of the pandemic they have these like really big labor shortages now and and i see all these contracts coming out the union ones where pay is going up yeah like you said like 40 percent things like that it just seems like a there should be a a case study at some point
0: (laughs) yeah don't lay off all of your employees because of a temporary event
2: yeah what were they thinking didn't they realize it would end at some point
0: elizabeth what's your number
2: uh, my number is
3: $718,000, and that is the base pay for a high-end Google engineer. Uh, apparently, today is the uh, tight labor market edition of <laughs> number Round. But I, this is relevant because they they also people at that level also typically get a bonus, and it can be up to $605,000. And this is not including equity comp. So this is what decently paid engineers are making at Google. And it's relevant because 60%... Of Google employees surveyed this year, think they're underpaid. Um, yeah, I mean, ins-
0: if you're living in Palo Alto on 1.3 million dollars a year, you can barely get by.
3: Google does a survey every year, apparently, to gauge you know employee satisfaction, and it's it's uh, down by six percent from last year regarding comp packages.
2: But that's not what like the median Google worker makes, right?
3: The median number is 279,802.
2: So starvation wage.
1: <laughs> uh, Jason, do you have a number? I do. My number is six percent, and uh, that is the percentage of overall doc- visits to a primary primary care doctor that can be fully taken care of via telehealth instead. And so this comes from my healthcare chapter of my book. Amazon was studying the right way to get into providing medical care and they talked to some primary care physicians. They studied about 50,000 different reasons that people would visit a primary care physician and then they were trying to figure out what telehealth could do and and so when we see now Amazon buy One Medical which provides visits to a physical doctor's office um, and we see walmart opening up their own walmart health clinics which are physical clinics sort of super centers of medical care Um, this is part of the reason why um, a very small percentage of visits to a doctor um, despite the rise of telehealth can still be handled solely by a telehealth visit so give us the the 30 second
0: answer to the question of like when Amazon and Berkshire Hathaway and JP Morgan all got together and hired Atul Gawande to like reinvent healthcare and that like completely imploded and failed? Like what was the reason why that didn't work?
1: So I have a whole chapter on healthcare, but do not go deep into that joint venture because there's so much else to talk about. But, but I think there was, there was a large disagreement on how the entities were going to share data, uh, between, (laughs) among each other, um, which seems like pretty foundational. Yeah, like this is the number one
0: problem with healthcare tech. It's like, how do you deal with all of the rules around data? I think that's it. Thanks so much, Jason, for coming on. It's been amazing having you on the show. We definitely need to get you back. Um, whether or not you raise another
1: book. I mean, I would love to be back either way. I can't imagine writing a second one.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you to Shana Roth for producing. Thank you for all of you guys for sending us your amazing emails on sleepmoney at sleep.com. And we'll be back next week with another Sleep Money.